Amen. Would you pray with me real quickly? God, thank you for the truth of these words, that our soul can be well in the midst of difficulty and darkness. I pray today that we would encounter you in a real way, not just distant words on a screen, but in a real way in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we release the kiddos, just a short change today. Um, we are only releasing kindergartners and first graders today. So, kindergartners and first graders, you're released. The rest of you, the kiddos, you have to listen to me preach today. Um, woo, woo, woo. Okay. Um, and you don't have anything to color either. So, this is like uh, old school, listening to preaching kind of way. When I grew up, I lived in the age and era, and it seems like it's coming back a little bit, where um, all the ladies wore the big uh, shoulder puffs underneath their clothes, and it was like the perfect little thing to sleep on. Um, we don't have those, I don't think, as much anymore. While they're doing that, let me invite you to open your Bibles, if you brought one, to James chapter 5, James chapter 5, and... Um, we're going to continue in our third sermon on dealing with difficulty and suffering. And I know that is not a popular, uh, we're not in a popular series, um, but I think it's real, if, if, it's authentic, and it's something that we all deal with and walk through. Um, as I said last week, that every one of us in this room will walk through the wilderness, and I can't predict when it's coming. But I can, through God's word, prepare us for it. So that's what we look at in James chapter 5. We were in James chapter 1 the past two weeks. We're walking through the book of James in themes. So if you would think about this, really as one long sermon broke up into kind of smaller uh, thematic chapters, that's what James is doing, is this was sent out to be a letter to the scattered churches that were undergoing some of the most difficult difficult oppression and persecution. Many people think that James was the first widely circulated letter even before some of the gospels were circulated. This book, this letter from James, the half-brother of Jesus, sent to the different churches. Let me read in James chapter 5. Starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. There's a myth going around that you may have heard, may have even said, that God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that? Anyone? 
This means you raise your hand. When I raise my hand, anybody? Yeah, this is like the, yeah, okay, here we go. Um, that God will get, never give you more than you can handle. However, God never said that. As a matter of fact, everyone that I've ever known or read about has died, meaning that they had at some point in their life more than they can handle, right? Because they did not defeat the ultimate death. That is not what God said. He never said he would not give you more than you can handle. As a matter of fact, if you look at the examples of Scripture, God always gives you more than you can handle. Because the whole point of this is to get you to the place to where you know you need him. That we would get to a place that we are poor in spirit. I heard a preacher say this week that the problem with the American church is we are not poor in spirit. We are middle class in spirit. We never get to the place to where we have this full desperation and need of God. So James, in his very direct and through his pastoral heart, is speaking right at the problem of suffering. And he starts with this idea of be patient until the coming of the Lord. The context here is these, this, these people are in a situation that they cannot control. They're going through a situation. If you look up at uh, verse 1, it's talking about some of the rich people taking advantage of the poor people, and they have worked for them but have not been paid, and without any kind of legal system that they can run to in order to get their money back for the, the work they've done, and they're depending daily on these wages, they're literally starving to death because of some other people have taken advantage of them. That's the situation. They're in a situation that they cannot control. They're walking through a wilderness that they have no power over. And so James is going to give them two encouragements and two examples. First, you see this idea of being patient. Now, the word we've used in the past couple weeks was not patience, was, was steadfastness. That was in chapter 1 and verse 12, that we would be steadfast, it says, again and again. And that word, the Greek word, is made up really of two words, meaning long and anger. Long to anger. It really has to do with time. As you are up under the difficulty of life and life is squeezing you, that we should be steadfast, meaning that we should bear up under it long to anger. No matter how long it goes, no matter how difficult the season is, no matter how dry the desert is we're walking through or wilderness that we happen to be in, we're to continue being steadfast through it knowing that God is going to bring us through. And we talked a couple weeks ago how the God uses this. God is not some evil father in the sky wanting and causing all these difficulties, yet he is going to use the difficulties brought on by the fallen world and by our suffering and sometimes even because of our sin, and he's going to use those to prepare us for the next thing that we have to walk through, all the while he's conforming us into the image of his son Jesus. That's steadfastness. Being steadfast is stability over time. Patience, though, this is a different word. It's, again, composed of two Greek words that mean remain and under. Another way of saying it was bearing trial without complaint. Bearing difficulty without complaint. And this really has to do, this has to do more with our attitude than anything else. With our attitude. It's speaking of When we walk through difficulty, 
Are we shaking our fist at the sky and saying, God, how could you? I was reading a story of Joni Erickson Tata. You may have heard of her. She was, was a quadriplegic because of a diving accident when she was in high school. And if that was not enough, and you should read some of her biographies, they are, they are incredible. Talk about the pain we feel compared to others. On top of all that, she's had cancer twice. Most recently, her uh, breast cancer had come back, and I was reading a little blog that she wrote, and she was praying that she would not waste this opportunity to show God's goodness. That's this picture of patience. It has to do with the attitude of bearing trial, walking through trial without complaint. And he gives us this illustration here with the farmer. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Of course, he's speaking to those who would really understand a agricultural context, this idea of a farmer. There's a predictable nature to farming, is there not? You sow and you reap with waiting in between. You can't hurry it up. You can't make it rain. In all honesty, there's not much you can do to, to control what happens other than sowing and reaping. And again, you can't, you can't hurry it up. You can't sow yesterday and reap today. There's this waiting in between, and he even speaks of this idea of wait, waiting for the early and the late rains, if the rains even come. Do you see how powerless the farmer is other than planting the seed and prayerfully good soil and waiting for God to do his part? And in the same way, Christians, in the same way, brothers and sisters, in the same way, church, when we walk through difficulty, the call to us is to be patient. Now, I hate being patient. I literally hate it. The only thing I hate worse than that, and the two are tied together, is weakness. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be found weak in anything. We were talking about this at dinner last night with some friends. If I can't do something well, I don't even want to try it. Like, I don't like to be weak. I, I hate not even being able to open the, the top on a pickles jar. Like, you know, I try, and then I give it to Claire, and she opens it right up, you know, because I loosened it that whole bit. Like, I don't want to be weak in anything, and yet this is the call from James to the power of the Holy Spirit to our hearts as we're walking through difficulty. Be patient. Matter of fact, Paul would say that it's in our weakness that God is made strong. It's a value that we should boast in our weakness. Can you even imagine? I was praying about how this sermon would go a couple even weeks ago. And I, I, God just kept bringing this idea of patience back up to my heart. I don't like being patient, but I consider myself a patient person. And this week I had none of it. Isn't it kind of our Father who shows us where, where we're lacking so much? He says in verse 8, you also be patient. Then he says, establish your hearts. 
In my devotional time this week, I was reading in Luke chapter 8, and I think I have some of this on the thing, and I don't want to do the, the whole, this is Jesus talking about the parable of the, of the sower and the seeds and the soils. You remember this, right? That a sower went out to sow some seed, and, and some of that seed uh, fell, uh, fell on the path and was trampled, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some on the rocks, and it grew up, but it withered away because it because it had no moisture, and then, and then some among the thorns, and then the thorns choked it out, and then some, finally some of the seed, threw all the seed out, only some of it landed in good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. The disciples come to him, as they often did, which brings my heart so much joy, because I don't understand most things I read on first reading. Goes back to Jesus and says, Jesus, please explain Let's pick up in verse 11 of Luke chapter 8, and I want you to see how this parallels with the passage in James that we just read. Now, the parable is this. The seed, Jesus says, is the word of God, the truth of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe only for a while. And in a time of testing or trial or difficulty, same Greek word, time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, hold fast, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. Look at this last phrase, and bear fruit with patience. Bearing fruit with patience. Every time I prayed this week, that's all I could hear the Lord saying to me, Luke, bear fruit with patience. We live in an age where we want the fruit immediately. We want, we want drive-through fruit, right? We just want it just like we want it right now. And like, Lord, make me patient now. You know, Lord, make me humble right now. I want to muster up all the energy that I can possibly and say the right prayer in the right way so that when I walk out of this room today, I am just abounding, right, with the fruit of the Spirit in my life, but it doesn't work that way because we can't produce the fruit on our own. If John 15 tells us anything, our need is total, not partial need, our need is total. You can't muster up the energy or the spiritual juju or whatever else you need to, to display the fruit of the Spirit on your own. This is the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And that fruit is best grown in difficulty and, and, and in the wilderness. Bearing fruit with patience. You ever try to disciple someone and they don't grow at the same speed as you would like them to grow? You ever invest your life into your own kids and you're teaching them the same lesson for the 10,000th time and you think you have just failed as a parent or something is seriously wrong with your kid 
How, how can they forget to put their shoes on when we're going somewhere again? How is that even possible, right? It does my heart great joy to know that Jesus spent three years, God in the flesh with his disciples. And yet on the Mount of Ascension, Jesus is literally floating up into the air. And it said some praised and yet some doubted. Some of these people that Jesus himself had poured his life into are like, what do you think is going on here? Is there like a string somewhere? Is there like some eagles like pulling him back there? Like what? I, I just, I don't think it's true. Only one of his disciples is at the cross with him. Peter denies him just hours before. Jesus dies. They go back to their old profession. Jesus appears to them, and yet there are still some. Thomas, who wasn't with them to see him, he's got the testimony of all the, yeah, he was here, man. He just walked right through the door when we were meeting. It was incredible. And Thomas like, nope, I still don't believe. This is the biblical precedent of sowing and reaping as we're not in charge of it. We sow the seed. We pray, we set the sails and pray for the Holy Spirit to, bro, to, to blow. But this is a supernatural work of God that we would bear fruit. And here's the thing with patience. James again says in verse 8, you also be patient, establishing your hearts, shoring up the walls of your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That last little phrase, the coming of the Lord, you may have heard that before. First Peter 4, 7 uses the same phrase, at the, end of all, at the end of all things is at hand, he says. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Things are at hand, the coming of the Lord, the Greek word parousia, it meant the arrival. It's mentioned over 500 times in Scripture. Now, when we think of this, this is not the whole, like, uh, the movies and the books that we've seen with Kirk Cameron in it, not necessarily that. This is about God coming back and making everything right. This is God coming back and making everything right. And this is the, this idea that God's going to return and he's going to make things right. And because we know that's true, we should be patient. We should be patient. Then he goes on in verse 9. His second kind of encouragement or exhortation to us. We should be patient. He says it three times there. And then in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Be patient and don't grumble. What's really going on behind that word? This is the Greek word for sigh. Not sigh as in desperation or prayer. Sigh as in you tell your kid to go clean the, to clean the room. They're like, ugh. They know they can't fight against you. You're going to win this argument. And they don't want to do it in their heart, yet they're going to do it physically or at least attempt to do it. But with a terrible attitude, it's this, hey, I need you to go clean up your room, son. Ugh. That's, that's the word here, and grumbling against one another. It's complaining or grumbling in this really passive-aggressive sort of way. 
And you think of that, and my first thought was, isn't the Psalms filled with this? Isn't this how, like, every Psalm goes, this complaint of David? Over a third of the Psalms written are songs of laments. They're songs of, in some way, complaining about the situation. But here's the difference. In the Psalms, where they mention complaints, they acknowledge the suffering. They're very honest and authentic about that. And they ask God to step in and make it right. They come to the end of themselves. This is not passive-aggressive complaining. This is David saying, listen, the situation is bleak and it's dark and I don't see a way out unless you show up, God. The other, what he is saying here, don't complain, is this idea like, you know, God must not really love me and I'm just going to just kind of huff and puff my way through it, complaining. And even when we're not complaining against God, we're complaining against one another. We're pulling other people down in our little pity party of sorts. And that's not what the situation calls for, right? In verse 9, he says, we should not complain against one another. Do not grumble against one another. Why shouldn't we grumble? So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, capital J, maybe it has in your translation, it should, is standing at the door. Now you might be thinking, well, pastor, I thought that those who are in Christ, there will be no judgment. Well, in a sense, you're right. Well, partially right. And I don't want to dive too far into this. We can talk about some of this offline if you would like. But the Bible speaks of two judgments. There's the great white throne judgment that we see in the book of Revelation, the separating of the sheep and the goats. But there's another judgment that Paul talks about, probably the clearest in 1 Corinthians 3, the Bema seat judgment. Verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Again, the capital D in day is speaking of this other judgment, this Bema seat judgment. Think of it as this huge award ceremony that God is going to actually give out awards for the things that his people accomplished according to his will. And what measure does he judge what we've accomplished? We've got a Christian subculture, if you haven't noticed, of authors and speakers the people that are invited to the big events or the people you see on TV. Maybe you've read their books and you see them and you think, man, that is incredible. However, God does not give out these awards at this special day that he's talking about based upon what we necessarily accomplished. What are the means in which God, the righteous judge, determines what award we should be given by what we have done with what he's given us. And I want you to look at chapter 4 real quick. In verse 5, again, of Corinthians. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Maybe you would underline or circle that. God judges by the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. So how does God determine to what extent one will be commended? It's the heart. And I believe firmly in my heart when we get to that day, the people are gonna, that are going to receive these awards are people that you have likely never heard of. 
They're the Sudanese missionary or the national pastor that was raised up is putting his life at stake every time that he stands up in this little group of people of 10 or 12 and he's sharing the gospel with them. These people who've given their life to be Christian aid workers, again, never in a magazine, never on the forefront of your mind, but yet God, the righteous judge, is looking at the heart. And on that day, award after award after award will be given to those people See, Scripture talks about this idea that God has, this idea of stewardship. How God has entrusted to it, it, everyone in this room at least these three things. Three categories of blessing, if you will. We have time, a limited number of days. We've all been given time to steward it for the purposes of God. We've all been given talent, unique spiritual gifts and abilities and abilities, and personalities, and environments that we've been placed in. We all have talents, and then we all have a measure of finances. Those three categories God has given us and trusted to us that we would steward well for his kingdom. And on that day, the day, as Paul talks about, as even James talks about, everything will be exposed. We will see the pure motives of our hearts. And on that day, God will reward those who served him with a pure heart. Now, what if I don't do well in those three categories? Well, this is not speaking of your salvation. That was handled through the work of Jesus. But look as it says here, even in, uh, in chapter 3, though he himself will be saved, verse 15 at the end, but only as through fire. Adrian Rogers used to say, saved but singed, speaking of the mismanaged life of a Christian. So the encouragements, once again, were to be patient and not to grumble. Heard it said this way, we should be patient because God is going to hold all of them accountable. All of them that are doing wrong and oppressing other people. Be patient, church. God is going to hold all of them accountable. But don't grumble, church, because God is going to hold all of us accountable. Then to be an encouragement to us, as James goes on, he gives us a few examples. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold. We consider those blessed who remain, there's this word again, steadfast. Again, bearing up with stability over time. The prophets. You know these prophets that came and spoke of the name, in the name of the Lord and delivered God's message, most often a very hard message, and they were not well received. Take Jeremiah, for example. You remember the life of Jeremiah, maybe, often called the weeping prophet. No one ever liked his message. No one ever said, good job, pastor, to Jeremiah. They always hated him. After his first sermon, instead of a handshake and a good job, pastor, they threatened his life. It's in chapter 11. Even his own relatives conspired against him and betrayed him in chapter 12. Many of the other priests of the day hated him. After one 
such message, they dragged him to the gate of Benjamin and beat him nearly to death and put him in stocks. At one point, he confessed how hard it was to speak the words of God and be the target of such mockery. He was hated so much that with the king's permission, this is Jeremiah again, who we're supposed to consider as the example, who remained steadfast, they took with the king's permission, they took him and threw him into a well. He got stuck in the bottom of the mud, was starving to death for days and days until eventually someone saved him. He was abused nearly all his ministry, but he continued to speak the words of God because he was steadfast. Jeremiah knew he had to speak the message that God had given him. He wrote, that if he tried to resist speaking what God told him and not even mention God's name, that the words of God would be like fire in his heart. I don't think I have this on the screen. I want to just read it, read it to you real quick. In Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9, he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, this is Jeremiah speaking, there is this in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Verse 10, for I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Let's denounce him, let's denounce him. Say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived and we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Even his friends hated him. Verse 11, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble, they will not overcome me. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts who tests the righteous sees the heart and the mind. He ends this, well, kind of in the middle. It gets even worse after this. Verse 13, Jeremiah says, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. God told Jeremiah that if he would boldly speak his words and not shrink back in fear of people, God would give him the strength to withstand, to be steadfast under the darkest persecution. He said to him in chapter 15 of Jeremiah, I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail for I am with you to save you and deliver you. This is what James says. Hey, as an example of suffering and patience, let's remember the prophets. And we could go through a long list of them. It's not just Jeremiah. But then also that we would consider Job. Behold, in verse 11, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You remember Job, right? Who had all the wealth, all the great things. His life was great. And in one day, he lost all of his children and all of his wealth. Talk about a bad day. In verse 20, after he had got the news, the death of his kids, and everything that he owned. It says, and again, I don't think this is on the screen, in verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came into, from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It gets worse, though, as you read the story of Job. In chapter 2, he loses his health. 
In verse 9 it says, Then his wife said to him, said to Job, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Talk about an encouraging wife. I'm sure he was wondering, God, why did you leave her? We won't go there. It's inappropriate. In verse 10, but then Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And this is not marriage advice. I don't know that you should respond with that. You speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now why did God all allow all that to happen to Job? We don't really know. We do know at the end that he received at least a double portion of everything that he had lost, except for his children. We get some idea over the next 40 chapters as him and God have this conversation. It's kind of breathtaking to read it. And James uses him as an example to the church. said, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purposes of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And it kind of leaves us hanging there with one thing that we've heard and one thing that we've seen. This is him wrapping up this thought. Hey, church, I know you're going through a difficult time. I want you to remember that one thing you've heard, the steadfastness of Job and the prophets, and the one thing you've seen, and that's the goodness of God, that God is, you've seen the purposes of the Lord, how he is compassionate and merciful. What does that mean, you've seen the purposes of the Lord? Not in full, but certainly in part. You've seen them in your own life. Church, have you not, those of you who've walked with God, have you not seen some of the purposes of the Lord? How you walk through a difficult time. How even in your own sin, you created this own cesspool of difficulty and consequences, and yet God used those to redeem you and to conform you into the image. Can't you look back and provide some testimony in your own life of how God has worked? Or maybe you've walked through one of the most difficult times in, in your life or you're just coming out of it and you don't know the full story even as Job didn't, but you can look back and see how God worked through the wilderness. We've seen it in our own lives, certainly. But I think he's speaking more not just in your own lives of things that you've seen. I think he's talking about Jesus specifically. These people <clears throat> would have been alive. They, many of them would have been in the crowd and saw the crucifixion, many of them as the couple on the road to Emmaus on the way home as Jesus is encountering with them um, after the crucifixion. And they're like, man, you know, did you not see? All of Jerusalem saw what happened to Jesus. And James is saying, you've seen the purposes of the Lord who through the most horrific scene on Good Friday, Jesus beaten beyond recognition and killed through execution on a cross, produced one of the most beautiful and hopeful images imaginable. So much so, this picture of imminent death, the cross for the Romans, has become for us this incredible image of hope, so much so that we have it around our necks. And some of you have it dangling from your ears or tattooed on your arms or stickers on your cars or pictures framed in your houses. God, through his sovereignty, took what was meant to be the most evil thing 
a cross and redeemed its purpose to purchase salvation for those that would follow him. James reminds them, hey, you've seen the purposes of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Paul uses similar language in his second letter to Corinth, and we're almost, we're almost through. We're going to take communion in a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll invite the band to come on up when they're ready. 2 Corinthians 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the word again. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. He's not the Father of evil and the God of all destruction. No, he's the father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we, we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Church, I don't know the answer to all your suffering. Nor do I know its reasons, but I do know that there is great meaning in your suffering because God, our good Father in heaven, never wastes a hurt and never forgets a tear. My encouragement for you is to not let this wound, this difficulty go to waste. Let it bring you to the end of yourself. Let it draw you closer to God. And let what has happened to you, what God's done through you, bring comfort to others. One of the greatest schemes of the enemy is to convince you that you're alone. That God's not present, that you're the only one that's walked through something so difficult. And he brings guilt and shame in the midst of darkness and difficulty. And you end up in this, you end up disoriented is what you end up. I heard one guy say one time that he could have never attended church. Because as he passed by the church on Sunday mornings, in his word, it looked like some fancy cocktail party for the confident, put-together people. And he said, I could never belong to that group. Oh, how mistaken. How far from the truth. Because if we're anything, church, we are the fellowship of the broken, of the forgiven, of the restored, and the trouble-hearted. As we prepare for communion this morning, literally remembering and celebrating the broken body of Jesus, I want to do something a little different. To give God glory for what he is sustaining you or has sustained you through. But also to prove to those whom Satan is whispering in their ear, even now, you're alone. God doesn't love you. You're the only one. Look how hard things are. Where is God? When you need him. So the purpose of this is certainly not to embarrass you. But to let this be a gift of worship to God for his goodness. And a gift of support to those who are around you. I'm going to read ten different statements. And if there's one of these that you're familiar with or that describes you. I'm going to ask you just to stand right where you're at. 
This is going to be a step. It's going to take some courage. I understand. But again, this is a gift of worship to God for his goodness of getting you through it. And a gift of support to those around you. So as I read one of these, will you stand and just remain standing? And I'm going to ask Jamie Beveridge to come pray for us here in just a minute. And then we're going to share a family meal as communion. Remembering the broken body of Jesus. Who although he never sinned. Allowed his body to be broken for us. Will you stand? If you've ever suffered from deep grief or lingering loneliness. If you or someone you love has ever been troubled by addiction. Like alcohol or substance abuse or gambling or sex. If you've ever been through the pain of betrayal or divorce. Maybe rose in a broken, raised in a broken home. If you've ever experienced the death of a spouse or a child or mom or dad. If you've ever had a miscarriage or know the ache of long seasons of infertility. If you've ever known vocational pain, failure of being fired, unable to find work. If you or anyone in your close family has ever been through cancer or heart problems, lingering difficult health issues, if you've ever felt a failure as a parent or felt the pain of having a son or daughter oppose the faith, if you've ever walked through lingering doubt and discouragement, ever been through other seasons of difficulty financial, relational, health or other you can look around, there's people standing everywhere church don't buy the lie that we've got it all together God is glorified and made strong in our weaknesses because we are not the fellowship of the perfect we're the fellowship of the trouble hearted are the fellowship of those who have great hope in Jesus. We're reminded every week as we sing these songs, as we take the bread representing the body of Christ and we dip it into the juice representing the blood of Jesus. And we eat it. And we leave here proclaiming in our minds and our hearts and our lips the death of Christ. His death for our salvation. Pray for us. Jamie, would you come? Jamie's been walking through her own season of difficulty. And this is putting her on the spot. I didn't even tell her she was doing this. I just want her to pray over us. And when she's done, our communion service will be here. And you're invited to come and take communion. Me and the prayer team will be in the back. If you'd like to pray with someone, maybe this season is just so hard. You just need to hear audible prayers over you. This prayer team, they live for this. They even met yesterday just asking God for opportunities to pray for you. So please don't be too proud for this. Jamie, will you pray? And then, and then you come when you're ready. Father God, you are good. You are faithful. Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray right now you flood this place with your presence. Father, I pray that every... Um, body that is standing, Lord, fills you. 
They feel you. They smell you. They sense you near. Lord, I pray they feel you hugging them and loving them. Lord, I pray against the sound of the voice of the enemy that says you are alone. Nobody understands. Um, You're the only one that's doing this. That is a lie. And I, uh, in Jesus' name, I say right now that is a lie. And there is no room for that lie in this building or in your life. Father God, I just pray that this, these people that you, you ordained this time, this moment, this morning for them to be here. They are not here by an accident. They're not anywhere in their life by an accident. They live, they work, they play. They are married to, they are friends with. Everything is by your design, Lord. Thank you. Lord, but uh, Lord, I pray that they will walk in the freedom and the security that you hold all things together. And you are a faithful God. And that every story, even if it looks yucky, it all ends good because it all ends with you. And Lord, as Christians, we get to walk in that joy every day. And Lord, I pray joy over these people. Father, I pray that as we leave here today, we walk out of here in joy. And it doesn't matter what your circumstance is. It doesn't matter because you have the joy of the Lord. And Lord, I pray that these people, that as they leave here, they spread that joy like confetti on this. Just, just spew it out like baby powder. Just all over the place. And people say, what is that? And it's you, Lord. Lord, I pray revival over our town, over our city, over our church, over our families, over our youth group, over our children, over myself. Father, thank you for being the God of reconciliation. Thank you for being the the God who, uh, who chases after us when we are running with our backs turned when we ain't even looking and you're still coming and you're still smiling. Thank you. Thank you for chasing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving our people. Thank you for loving our children. Father, we pray that you raise up um, an army. We've got an army of babies, an army of youth. I pray you raise up children that will just be um, unashamed of the gospel. They will be bold. They will speak your name. They will, they're not scared. They aren't followers. They are leaders in the name of Jesus. Lord, you are so good. Let us worship you. Lord, with everything that we do, let us worship you. Let us worship you when we eat and when we drink and when we sleep and when we speak. Lord, just thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being a good father. All the reasons that were that these people stood, all the reasons that Luke listed, all the things that he didn't say, Lord, I know there's more. Lord, I pray freedom over those things. If you're standing because you've walked through something that you're still grieving over, I pray in Jesus' name, freedom over you. You don't have to walk in that anymore. It's done. It's accomplished. It was accomplished on the cross. Hallelujah. Lord, you are so good. Thank you. 
thank you that we get to come right now and we get to have communion communion and partake in this because you have gone before us. Lord, thank you. Lord, let us not um, leave this place and leave this behind, but just take it with us every day. Lord, we just pray that. We just ask all this in your holy, holy name.